This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey, thanks for coming back for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. We have a real treat for you on today's episode. Two leading soil scientists that both work for different agencies within the USDA who also happen to be spouses. Mark Liebig and Susan Sampson Liebig both live and work in North Dakota. Mark is a research soil scientist with the USDA Agricultural Research Service based in Mandan. Susan is a soil quality specialist with the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service based in Bismarck. This will be the first of a two-part episode. Today, we will understand the work that Mark and Susan both do, as well as a specific focus on some of the cover crop work. The next episode will explore soil quality and some of the measurement tools they have both worked with to assess things like soil carbon. Make sure you listen to both, though, because I don't think you'll find this amount of soil expertise distilled down to two short episodes anywhere else. But first, some background. Susan has been in her position as a soil quality specialist with NRCS since 2004. Before that, she spent 17 years at the National Soil Center in Lincoln, Nebraska, where she tested soil testing methods, more on that in the next episode, and conducted soil investigations. Today, her main focus is on outreach, training agency staff, and doing soil investigations and other soil projects. Mark Liebig works with a team of USDA ARS scientists to develop soil, crop, and animal management systems on the Great Plains. His role as a research soil scientist mostly focuses on looking at management effects on soil properties and various ecosystem services. The couple have both developed and tested decision tools for soil quality and for cover crops, which we're going to dive in deeper on today's episode. But first, I asked if they could explain about the differences between their two agencies. NRCS, basically, it's that customer-facing agency, so we work with farmers, producers, the urban sector, the public generally, on implementing the farm programs that have been authorized through farm bills. And so that's kind of what we do is um, we work directly with the farmers to, to implement these practices that we've been talking about. ARS is very much focused on solving, you know, problems for producers across the whole wide swath of what agriculture represents within the United States and really the world. And so our approach is to take a, a research science-based approach to identifying uh, what those solutions are. And, you know, the extent of our work is broad from the crops to the soils to the animals and so forth. It's in, in, in all aspects that are tied into sort of the production chain. And uh, as it also affects the, the, the broader environment as well. So, And with NRCS too, I mean, our, our mission is to protect the soil and water, you know, all of the natural resources on the land. So we do that via working with the landowners and implementing, you know, these practices that have been authorized through the Farm Bill. And part of this too is that how ARS and NRCS kind of are connected is we from NRCS try to take the research results that ARS produces and then help to get that also on the ground. So 
this is where our agencies do work pretty close together is on this transfer of the research and then getting it into the hands of people to use. This dynamic offers just a really rich perspective that you're going to hear on this episode and next, with Susan being focused on outreach and Mark being focused on research. They're sort of a soil health dynamic duo, although they'd probably be embarrassed by me calling them that. Both Mark and Susan have worked in many different aspects of soil health. I thought, though, a good place to start digging in a little deeper would be the same place that many farmers seem to begin their soil health journeys, in cover crops. Oh, yeah, we've been doing work for, oh, about 15 years here on cover crops and different long and short-term studies. You know, one of our initial big efforts was to look at the role of cover crops, cover crop mixtures after a uh, sort of shorter season grain or peas or something like that, something that comes off fairly early. And so, yeah, we had a study we ran for three years, uh, 18 different cover crop treatments, seeding those in, in August and seeing what happens. And it was a good study. It was one where we learned that first off, if we didn't get a shot of rain in the first two weeks, there wasn't going to be hardly any biomass production at all. We did, though, find in the years that where we did get the precipitation, uh, we got great ground cover. We also were able to conserve a little bit of nitrogen from that biomass growth. And I guess somewhat not surprisingly, we didn't really see much of effect on, on the soil properties themselves near surface, but you wouldn't expect that necessarily within such a short time mm-hmm. frame. So, you know, time sensitivity with precipitation, obviously at you know, that time of the year when you're seeding, you need to stack your mix towards cool seasons because there's just fewer and fewer heat units as you go into the fall. But yeah, we've we followed on, you know, with some other studies that are ongoing still. We've been, you know, interseeding cover crops and corn at different seeding times. That's showing some promise to offer some really good cover without having a negative impact on corn yield. We've been even seeding cover crop mixtures into standing wheat, you know, to establish a sort of a perennial mix within the, the wheat understory. So that could grow as a cover crop into the next year. So you'd have a good forage resource already established. Well, you can't hardly keep up with it. There's so many different iterations and opportunities out there, but we've we've done a little bit of work Mm -hmm. in that regard Mm -hmm. to supplement what's been going on at NDSU and elsewhere in the region. With so many different options out there for cover crops, I wondered if research indicated if one was necessarily better than another, or if maybe more diversity in a cover crop cocktail was always better. Cover crops have different functions. And so I think I think we do have to be mindful of, first off, you know, asking yourself, what natural resource or production goal do you want to achieve? And then you look at the immense portfolio of options out there, and then you, you make your selections accordingly. I don't think it's quite that simple. I think we're getting enough research now that we can begin tailoring our decisions to achieve what we hope to achieve. Now, that being said, do we know everything that we need to know with these different mixtures and proportions within the mixtures and oh, not no. at all. That is, Mm-mm. that's hundreds of lifetimes of work right there, just teasing that apart. But at least we're seeing across the state an adoption of the use of these cover crops, even if it's one or two species to get started with, at least we have farmers using them. We don't have everybody, but at least it's been rapidly growing in usage. So through the work that NDSU and ARS and others are doing, I think that it's going to take some time to be able to tease out, you know, what mixtures 
how many, all of that. That's like Mark said, that's a lifetime of work. But at least we have people that are starting to use them, which is key because that is one defense of trying to help keep the soil covered, help to uh, prevent or reduce soil erosion, you know, on, you know, on the land. So, To help people understand the various cover crops and when or why to use them, Mark created a cover crop chart, sort of a periodic table for cover crops. Yeah, the chart is is our effort to sort of uh, provide a tool tool for for producers in helping them to make their decisions mm-hmm. on what what cover crops they could choose or what mixtures they'd want to put together. So it was well, about ten years ago, a little mm-hmm. over ten years ago, we were really getting into cover crop research here at the station, and you'd go online and. What you'd find always were these lists of crops, and sometimes they would be categorized into cool season grasses, you know, legumes, so on and so forth. But there wasn't there, you know, as if you're a visual learner, there was just nothing out there. You just had lists. And so, yeah, the sort of the aha moment came when I was actually in the lab evacuating gas files. You were working on a Saturday doing doing your lab work. I looked up at the periodic chart, and it was like, oh, there it is, just like elements in the chart have you know, similar properties, similar valence. So do crops as well. So you could line up your cool season grasses, your warm season grasses on opposite ends, and then you could fill in the middle with broadleaves and you'd have a group for root crops, you'd have a group for legumes and so forth. So yeah, it started pretty modest. I don't know. I think we had, what, about 46 crops yeah. initially, and now we're... 66, I believe. And it's mm-hmm. it's every iteration. We've done uh, three or four different versions of this. And you, you send it out. And then, you know, what happens is that another part of the world starts to get interested in it. And so our, our last iteration, we had all these responses from countries in tropical parts of the world that we hadn't heard from before. And they kept asking us, well, where's the warm season, you know, legumes, you know, I'm not seeing them here. And that was not something obviously we would necessarily be all that interested in here in North Dakota, but we had to develop some collaborations with researchers who have done that type of work in order to expand that portion of the chart. Yeah. So with each iteration, you know, it's going to be a work in progress ongoing is it improves uh, Mm -hmm. each time, but we do try to keep it real simple. I've been really hesitant to try to expand it to make it sort of more techie, I guess. It's not an app, but it's just the simple PDF. But that Mm. tends to work, I think, pretty well for most people in terms of accessibility. It's been a good tool for our field offices and NRCS to be able to help educate them, but also uh, help them being able to work with their farmers. So yeah, it's a simple tool, but I think it's been excellent as far as yeah, it's sort, sort of a work. gateway drug on cover crops. You know, you start there with mm-hmm. a chart, and then there's these other excellent tools out there yeah. that have been developed by Midwest Cover Crops Crop Council. They've got yeah. just stuff that's just really, really solid and mm-hmm. robust with a lot of information. Could be a bit much for someone new to it, you know, to the area. So you start here with the chart, and you learn a little bit more. And then as you graduate, then you can go to these other tools. Now, if you haven't seen this chart yet, it's really cool. You should check it out. Uh, We'll go ahead and provide a link to it in the show notes here. As I mentioned earlier, Mark and Susan were living in Nebraska before moving to North Dakota. 
I wanted to ask them a question that perhaps you've been wondering as you've been listening to this podcast series. What is it about North Dakota that has attracted so many leaders in soil health? That's a good question. I think when you take the long view in the soil health movement in this state, you know, it really, I think it goes back to the 70s. I mean, you got the yes. Mandax Zero Till, you've got the, the no-tillers out in Golden Valley County, you have sort of the area for SCD research farm. They weren't necessarily calling it quality soil health back then. I mean, the focus was very much on reducing tillage, eliminating fallow, improving water use efficiency. But the sort of co-benefit of that was that they were beginning to improve the condition of their soil. When I think about some of the soil health practices that have been popularized recently, you know, you can think back to the role of the organic community uh, when the Northern Plains Sustainable Ag Society kind of got started. I mean, soil health, while not explicitly stated, was a pretty important part. You know, the soil stewardship is a big part of their charter. And, you know, of course, they were practicing diverse crop rotations, a corporation of cover crops. There was you know, of course, perennialism was big, livestock integration, all these things to become a big part of the soil health movement. So I think from the ground up, from the farmer level, there was just this inherent recognition that we have to, you know, protect this resource. And maybe it's because of the extremes in weather that we often deal with in the Great Plains. You have to really look after your resource. And so it sort of brings mm -hmm. these management solutions out. And I think that just sort of set up a platform for greater awareness of the soil. And so, yeah, you get into the 90s. I mean, in some respects, the work that John Gardner was doing mm -hmm. at Carrington, you get into the late 90s by that time you know, ARS research stations up and down the Great Plains. They were doing soil quality assessments and long-term studies. Yeah, I think things were going on probably yeah. 30 years before we arrived, really. I don't even know if we can say we rode the crest. I mean, I think things were really rolling in a, in a big way yeah, when definitely. we got here. Yeah, but we were well aware of what was going on up here before we moved up oh, here, yeah. which also I found interesting. What was going on up here was unique to the rest of the country. I had in my work down in Lincoln with the Soil Survey Center, we did work across the country and I really didn't encounter what was happening up here anywhere else, at least at the time. And that would have been in the late 80s and into the 90s. So very unique up here, but definitely was at the beginning, I think, of the whole soil health, what we call the soil health movement today. One thing has really stood out to me during the recording of this season, it's the way innovation happens in soil health a lot of times, and, and probably in other areas of agriculture as well. You get an innovative farmer who has an idea and can't find anyone else who's tried it, so they just decide to give it a try themselves. They observe a result and share it with their consultant and maybe someone in extension, and then eventually it prompts a researcher to test to see if the data supports what's happening there on that farm. And if so, the data can go back to Extension and to consultants and help that farmer and others understand and further implement these new practices. This cycle to me is just really cool. And of course, it supports our thesis of the show of collaboration being the key to agricultural advancements. It is. Yeah, it is. Certainly yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, the way you described it, Tim, is, is I, I've got a slide in a recent talk. It's very similar. You've got one circle, that's the innovative producers, and they're trying all these really innovative practices and testing them out. And then another circle is our sort of our demonstration farms, sort of like the Minokan farm, where they can also mm -hmm. try these things out and sort of tease out some of the things that may be happening. 
Then we look at our research centers, which is another circle. And there they apply those management practices in a replicated fashion over time, kind of put some, you know, hardcore science behind it. But the important thing is that those three circles, they overlap and there's interaction Mm -hmm. among those three groups that is, I think, really powerful in finding these transformational sort of solutions that we need in agriculture. One thing that strikes me about this is that a lot of times it has to start with a farmer willing to try something that is completely new and at first unsubstantiated by the research. Then the iterative process can sort of begin. That's yeah. a good point. It starts with the practice and then, you know, maybe the scientists get a hold of it and they measure all these things. But the good thing about the science is it allows us to evaluate the trade-offs because, you know, we can appreciate yes. there's never a silver bullet. You know, there's always going to be caveats associated with certain practices. And so those detailed evaluations done over time then sort of provides the information for us to understand the trade-offs so that the farmers then can sort of make a science-based decision as to whether they adopt it or whether they adopt it, but with some sort of, you know, they tweak it somewhat, you know. And I think that that's key because if we have farmers out there trying new things, but I think what they want is to have the science to be able to back them up as to try to help explain what it is that they're seeing as a result of trying these new practices. So that's been a good thing. You know, you think about the bell curve, those producers that they're trying the, the things that are really out of the box. They're on that far end, right? The far end of the 5%. But there's everyone else within the bell curve that they may need some some validation, some testing to be sure that mm-hmm. what the innovative producers are seeing is in fact going to happen in their system. And so that's where I think the science can come in to bring others along. And I think that it's really interesting and it's actually kind of fun or enjoyable to me to see across this state, various farmers trying different things out. And I think that that makes it very interesting just to see what they try out and then look to see what the impact of those practices have been, especially on the soil properties. So, I think this iterative cycle built on collaboration might get us back to the question I asked earlier. What is it about North Dakota that lends itself to being such a leader in soil health? At this point in time, I think it's the people that are here, probably. And it could just be that the work at hand and where we're at in agriculture and what's going on up here, I think it just naturally kind of falls in place. I think it does tie back to the people. People always have sort of collaborative spirit to them and and understanding that the solutions to to problems are often Mm -hmm. better if you can get more input on how things can be solved. I do kind of tie back. I know I said this earlier, but I, I sometimes I think about the extremes of our weather. I think kind of it forces us to come together to find solutions because you know we were always dealing with these challenging mm-hmm. conditions. And uh, in instances like this, it's best to look around and visit with others and interact to uh, identify you know solutions. I don't know. That's sort of armchair mm. sociology. There is probably not valid at all. But, <laughs> but uh. well, it is obvious that there is something unique up here, because even within NRCS, we've had you know some of our folks at our headquarters. You know, they were here last year, and and they saw this interaction. You know, between ARS and NRCS and NDSU and Extension, and. They asked us, they go, how does it work there? How did you get that established in North Dakota? 
so much that they want to find out what the secret is because they would like to be able to establish a similar working relationship in other parts of the country with different states. It's kind of hard to answer their question because it's like, well, we, we just do it. You know, I mean, we're all here and it's just a natural thing for us. Well, whatever the reason is, there's certainly something special happening in soil health in North Dakota. And I'm honored to be able to share it with you on this podcast. Thank you so much to Mark Liebig and Susan Sampson Liebig for taking the time to share their experience and expertise with us on the show. You'll definitely want to check out the next episode with Mark and Susan talking about soil quality and measurement. That's coming next week. Thanks also to the North Dakota Corn Council and the North Central Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program for making this podcast series possible. If you're enjoying the Soil Sense podcast, let us know. Great places to do that are either on Twitter or by leaving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. If you want more information about any of the topics discussed, check out our website, www.ndsoilsense.com. If you can't find answers to any of your questions there, let us know and maybe we can cover it here on the show. We're excited to bring you another great episode next week.